Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for this time together. Thank you for this group and their love for you and their love for each other. I pray that your spirit would be with us this morning as we go through this next section in Acts, that you would do what only you can do in our hearts, which is to form Christ in us, to grow us to maturity. I pray that uh, we are challenged by Luke's account this morning uh, to pursue Jesus above all else and to put down our own idols. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we're in Acts 19. 19. That's kind of cool. We're, uh, we're getting real close to probably being done with Acts, I would think, by the end of the year. But right now we're finishing up uh, Acts 19. What has happened in Ephesus so far? What, what, what are some of the, the scenes that Luke has given us with Ephesus? Just if you were going to summarize it, what would it be? Is this with the uh, riots? We're getting there today. But what's happened so far? Taking all their idols and burning them. They took their idols and what else? The books, the magic books of these incantations, elaborate things. All their Harry Potter books. Um, they, had, they got all those things together, right? And what was significant about that that, that we brought out last time? how they made their living. Some of it was how they made their living. And it was worth a whole lot of money. The books were worth a whole lot of money. Um, what also was a result of them exposing these or revealing these books? What, what, we talked a little bit about that too. I mean, they they couldn't do power. They lost their power. They, you know, in the mindset of the day, they lost the power. If you reveal these incantations to people, then you didn't have your you know, keep it secret, keep it safe little superpower over things to control your world. So that was kind of the pagan mentality of the day, yeah? There was kind of a purifying of the church, too, to get those things out of there. Right, and, that's, and that was the thing we, we brought out last time was that this was going on in the church among people who had already professed to be believers. What precipitated this? What caused this? How, what did Luke draw out? The seven sons of Sceva. Okay, what happened there? Skivvies. They were in their skivvies. Yeah. That's right. What happened? How did they get in their skivvies? They tried to invoke the name of Jesus to do what? To cast out a demon. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Well, that sounds authoritative. And then what happened? And the demon cast them out. And the demon cast them out. I know Paul, I recognize with you, I don't know. Jesus, I know Paul, I respect or recognize. Who are you? And beat them soundly, strip them, send them out, these Jewish guys, out in the, out in the public, all necko. And that's kind of a demeaning, humiliating thing for them, right? So that, that happened. And then what, ha- what does it say that happened to the city after this event? Fear. Fear. Kind of fear. Of God. The fear of God fell. And we see that the fear of God didn't just fall on the city. It fell on the church. And so you have this, this massive movement in Ephesus of people who had already professed to be Christians who are saying, yeah, but I've been keeping this in the closet. I've been hiding this here. I need to confess that I've been doing this even as I'm supposed to be following Christ. And it cost them money. It cost them pride. It cost them a feeling of security because once they reveal those things, it's cut off and they're done. So that's all going on. Major cost to them uh, because of the fear of God falling on the city, but most specifically the church. So in this time, 
What does Luke reveal is Paul's goal from this point forward? What's he, what's he plan on doing? 21-22, I think, is where he tells us. What is he about to do? He wants to go to Rome. Right? By way of probably Jerusalem. We'll find out later. He's going to take the offering that he's been collecting. I'm talking to the Corinthians about getting this offering together for, the, for those who are persecuted in Jerusalem. But his idea is to go to Rome. He wants to get there. Um, and here we have that uh, he's getting ready to leave Ephesus. But before he goes, there's still some time for some crazy, right? Let's look at verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines to Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So, hmm, what are we seeing? The gospel's having an impact. What's the impact? Where'd the money go? Where'd the money go? Right? Now, we talked about how what a religious center that Ephesus was. It was kind of a pagan cult center. And specifically to this goddess Artemis. It's called here in the, in the ESV. Other translations may have Diana. Um, and, and Diana, Artemis, was a, 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 a Hellenized version here uh, of, of, a, of a, an, a mother goddess of, of, the, of the region. Uh, Many times when we think of, you know, Diana in Greek mythology, she's the queen huntress kind of thing. And I don't know if you remember that from high school. Because, uh, you know, they teach Greek theology or Greek uh, mythology in high school these days. But um, if you, she was kind of this huntress and, and, uh, and pure and chaste and all this kind of stuff. That's not the Artemis they're talking about. The Artemis in Ephesus... Although she bore the same name as the Greek goddess, uh, was a um, well, she was queen. They <laughs> got that part right, but she was a fertility goddess. Uh, the the temple of Artemis is like one of the seven wonders of the world. We talked about that. There's an altar in there. The, the temple itself was very detailed, very elaborate, had this gold relief stuff, lots of colors and all this kind of stuff. The altar that they sacrificed to Artemis was a 20 foot by 20 foot square in the middle of this huge temple. And on the front of the altar, there was a, 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 an image, an engraved image of the goddess Artemis that they worshipped. And this <clears throat> image was of a woman who from the waist up was covered in breasts. First, 
<laughs> Ooh. Second, what does that represent? What does that tell you about what they believed? Well, <laughs> she is equipped to nourish. She is a, a, a goddess that gives life to all nature, uh, that, that uh, is the source of creation, the source of all this. It gives birth to the gods and all. This is the, this is the theology that they're, that they're buying into at the time. This is a fertility goddess, a pagan goddess that they've built this whole thing to, and they're making money off of her, right? She's Mother Nature, by the way. This is that's kind of the idea. This is the Mother Nature goddess. Um, so they've built this entire economy around this temple, around this cult of Artemis. And the thing is, this was the most popular cult in the Roman Empire at the time. E even with the emperor worship that was going on. This, there was a shrine to Artemis in Rome. There were 33 throughout the empire. Don't make anything of the number. That's just how many there were. There were 33 throughout the empire uh, to this goddess Artemis. But Ephesus was the hub of all of this. And it made some people money. In fact, the temple brought in so much money that it became its own financial institution. It would make loans. It would receive deposits. I guess a similar institution today would be Vatican Bank. You know, it's, it's kind of this wedding of religion and money in such a way that it becomes its own financial institution. I, I don't know if you can get a Vatican MasterCard. I, I don't know if you can do that. But anyway, so you have this. There's an impact, right? Christ impacts culture. As the kingdom of Christ rises, the culture that is built on this idolatry suffers. So Paul's getting ready to leave Ephesus, and, and yet this, is, this, this sudden thing happens among these guys. Um, first, let's look at this. Luke throughout Acts refers to Christianity as the way, and here we have a new resistance to the way that's institu instituted or instigated by these pagan craftsmen guys. Who, who, tell me what Luke says about the guy that's leading this. Who is this guy? Demetrius. Well, what do we know about him? He's a silversmith. And he makes shrines. Well, now, what they're talking about are these little replicas of the temple that you could, you could carry it with you. And you could take it to your house. And you could do all your pagan stuff right there in front of your temple in your house. It's, uh, it's, it's very portable. It's, it's the, the eye temple, you know, you can carry it around. And so you have, you have this uh, silversmith making these smaller things. They could either use it as, a, as an offering to uh, the goddess at the temple or they take it home and do their stuff. Um, we have copies of this. I mean, they found, they found these kinds of relics now, uh, but, but they're all made out of terracotta. They haven't found any silver ones yet. What do you think? Why do you think that? Any, any ideas from the first century to now why we don't have any silver? Somebody's melting that stuff down because it's an expensive metal, right? You know, Vandal Lives Matter comes through and gets the... Anyway, uh, they get the, the, the temple stuff and they go, and they go melt it down. Um, so you have this pilgrimage that happens... That goes, they go to Ephesus to, to, to worship Artemis, and they, they purchase these things 
um, to, to support and to show their devotion to this pagan goddess. All right. One thing that's significant about this, one thing that may not be apparent from the text, is that a lot of scholars believe that this is going on during the spring because Paul sends Timothy out and the time for sailing and all that kind of stuff is going to be in the springtime. Why is that significant, you think? Yeah, if you're going to worship a fertility goddess, what better season to do it than in spring when all the baby chicks hatch? Right? So you've got, you've got this festival that happened every year in the springtime. Uh, they do dances, plays, you know, whatever. So um, what is Demetrius saying? What's his argument to his fellow craftsmen about what the problem is? What does he identify? We don't have jobs anymore. One, we make a lot of money off of this, right? And especially it's, it's shown, uh, you know, when we're supposed to have Black Friday sales in spring and we don't get them because of this, people aren't interested in this. So sales are down, demand for our, our shrines and all this stuff is down. What's another argument he makes? That God's made with hands are not God's. Paul is arguing that God's made with hands are not God's. Is that... I mean, is he wrong? Is that, is that Paul's argument? Is he lying about Paul here? No. We remember that from Mars Hill, right? God does not dwell in, in temples made with human hands as if he needed anything. We don't feed him. We don't clothe him. He gives to us. We don't give to him, right? We don't... He supports us. He supplies for us. We don't supply to him. That's not a unique argument of Paul to Mars to the guys in Athens. He's making it here, and these guys are repeating it. What does that tell you? It's making an impact. Where your enemies are articulating your argument fairly, you know you've been able to, to make some headway, right? Rather than the straw man argument that you usually have. When they're articulating it fairly, that's true. That's exactly the argument he's making. The gospel changes culture. Some have said that the gospel is a solution to culture. We become what we worship. If I'm focused on Christ, my desire for shiny things that distract me from worshiping Him, it becomes less. The things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. You see the hymn, the hymn writer saying stuff like that? I find it incredibly interesting here that this change in Ephesus did not come through legislation, didn't come through executive order, didn't come through a constitutional amendment. How did it happen? Jesus. Changed hearts through Jesus. Changed hearts through the spread of the gospel, for the faithful proclamation of the word, and through the faithful witness of people repenting in the church and growing to look more and more like Jesus. That's the witness that's going on. So he says, first we receive a good income from this business. And he's talking to the fellow tradesmen, right? So that's going to sort of resonate with them. But is that really going to get fired up to, to do anything about it? Is that, I mean, they're going to... It's a starting point. It's a starting point. We got an incentive to do this, right? Who... who uh, so he, blamed, he blames Paul. 
And he does it this way. He weds this economic interest with religious fervor, religious fervor and civic pride, right? What does he say? Who is he to undermine the great Artemis? Why is that significant? And why does he say that? What, what, does he, what does he draw from that? Not only, he apparently is a very pious man, you know, you can tell the purity of his motives right here. Why does he say that's significant? If, if Artemis gets diminished, all of their work gets diminished. All of their work gets diminished. And what else? The rest of the world. Well, yes, the rest of the world now looks at Ephesus how? Lesser. Their central hub of the greatest cult in the empire diminishes. It becomes our world is crumbling. These Christians who are turning the world upside down, one of the one of the opposition said earlier. So you've got some serious issues with the kingdom of these pagans falling and the kingdom of Christ rising. There's going to be cost to them. Is it an effective argument? It's pretty standard fare, isn't it? Whenever we want to get people motivated. I mean, the economics are really what drive it. But if you can latch on to something emotional and put that as the face of, oh, we're doing it for the children. Right? If you can latch on to an emotional argument, you whip people up into a frenzy. And then you put a face to it. And you put a face to it with apparently all kinds of contraband stuff. But <laughs> you, directing it at Paul. Directing it at Paul. He become they demonize Paul, pardon the pun. They demonize Paul and say, we have, we're, we're going to make Ephesus great again. Right? So what <laughs> we have to preserve what we have here. Um, he's a good motivator. He realizes that the theological argument is probably not going to incite these guys, so he turns to their emotions. He's not going to argue with them over whether God's made with hands or really God's. I mean, that's not really his point. He brings that out to show this is the effect that it's having on our city on, and, on our, and on our way of life. So he goes to the pride of the city, the pride for Artemis. Um, all right. This whole uh, idea of, of, of an economic impact uh, by the gospel on pagan worship is not unique to Ephesus, by the way. I found reference to a, a letter by uh, Pliny to Trajan. It's one of those famous you know, ancient letters where he talks about how the, the, um, the trade for fodder for sacrificial animals had gone down in Bithynia because of the rise of Christianity. So they're not, they're, they're, the trade of feeding animals set to, you know, fatten them up to, for the sacrifices had gone down. So it's not just, not just silversmiths who are impacted here, but we have this story recorded. Um, all right, so verse 28, they now look for a safe zone. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So, naturally, the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. 
And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now what does this sound like? A reasoned, well-thought-out response to the worldview of Christianity. Is that what we see? Now these are Greeks. These are people trained in Greek philosophy, in, in the Greek culture, prizing reason, and they look like toddlers. Is there any, anything accomplished in this action other than let's just have an emotional gush? Do, is there any, any action that they're able to take that would do anything? No, there's yelling. So you have this, um, this, this mob that runs out in the city yelling, you know, our business is in danger. <laughs> no, they don't. They go to the civic pride, they go to the religious pride. And then the crowd picks up on that chant. And so they can't find Paul, so they grab two of his companions as stand-ins. What's the scene that Luke gives us here? What is he saying? What is he describing? Disorganized chaos. How do you know that? What's the language he uses here? They don't even know why they're there. They don't even know why they're there. Okay, a quick story has nothing to do with the lesson whatsoever. Uh, my mom, when she was younger, stayed with my grandmother, who is now uh, uh, deceased, and and uh, my my grandfather, who was there. And so she was. My grandmother always slept with a TV on. It drove me nuts. We stayed over there. She always slept with a TV on, loud too. She was Rambo in the background or whatever. So. <laughs> So my mom was sleeping on the couch, right? And she was like, you know, teenager or whatever. And uh, sleeping on the couch, and uh, she kind of cried out. She needed so She had a question about something. She goes, Mom, you know. Well, my grandmother had, like, is in that dreamy, like, half-sleep, half-awake state. Heard my mother crying out and just sat up and said, Run, Albert, Run! To which he dutifully gets up and starts running around the house and comes back to the bedroom and he looks at her and he says, Orlean, I don't even know what to run for. It's a state of confusion. They don't even know why they're there. They have no clue why they're there. It's chaos. This is very similar to what you're seeing in the news Why do you think that is? It works. Because <laughs> it works? It's easy to do. It's easy to do. Yeah. What do we see that's similar here? Who's this Alexander guy? What's going on there? Some well-known individual? Probably. Some, they put him forward to make a defense. Who puts him forward, do you think? The Jews did. The Jews did. Why are the Jews putting him forward to make a defense? Because he's going to put a defense for the Jews. For the Jews by saying what? What do you think? It doesn't tell us, but what do you think he's going to say? We're not with them. We're not with them. We are, we, God's chosen people, are no threat to the temple and the cult of Artemis. 
Now, isn't that sad? Isn't that an indictment? It's denying the law. It's denying that there is one God. It's denying their purpose for being there, which was initially to be a light to the Gentiles, to be a witness of the power of God. And yet they get up in this pagan town and say, oh, we're not with them. Don't, don't lump up. Do they get a chance to make the argument? Thankfully, no. <laughs> Thankfully, no. They don't get a chance to make the argument because the logical thing to do when you have an opposing argument is to shout it down so that nobody hears it. Mm -hmm. That's just fair. You don't have an opposing argument. You don't have facts. But thankfully, that emotion. doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that never happens. It's much better to go on emotion than reason if you're Greek, because that's just what they celebrate anyway. Uh, anyway, this is hip hypocritical for Greeks to do this. And Luke kind of tells this as kind of a funny story, really. The language kind of has this comical element to it. This is a serious deal. What is Paul wanting to do? Well, Alexander didn't do it. <laughs> what is Paul wanting to do? He wants to get up there. Who stops him? Other believers, other disciples, and who else? Some of his friends. Who are what? They're government officials. They're Asiarchs. They're, they're, they're these four or five guys that actually are not Christians. They are the, um, the administrators of the empire cult. They handle the administrative part of that stuff, but they're intellectuals. And apparently Paul had been reasoning with them and had made friends with them such that they cared enough about his safety that they warned him, don't go in there. They cray-cray. They're all crazy in there. Don't go in there. And he listened. He was withheld from going in there. Now, if you're Paul, you're thinking, great, the whole city's here. Let's go. What? What's another stoning, you know? There's two fold with it. You know, Paul, the obvious is Paul's probably going to get killed if he goes in. And right. the other is the crowd's just going to go more crazy, and there will probably be consequences of that to the city of destruction and whatnot. Right, right. So nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. Paul is an inflammatory figure, apparently. And they're in their safe zone. Don't violate their safe zone. Let's keep you out, right? <laughs> so there's that. Um, all right. This is, a, this is no attempt by this mob to change minds through reason. Th this is nothing more than an emotional gush of my, my world is falling apart and I just don't like it. Do you get the sense of futility of these actions? I mean, they make a roar, but nothing is accomplished here. They rush into this theater. This is the largest public building in the city, and, and this is the place where town meetings were held. And so they have this um, very disorganized, very ad hoc kind of town meeting we got to do something about these Christians. Um, and yet, this is a mob. This is confusion. This is shouting down the opposition and not talking about it. And so, the, these are toddlers, right? So Daddy comes to calm them down. Let's look at verse 35. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. 
Let them bring charges against one another, but if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So what Alexander could not do, the clerk does? Who's the clerk? Well, the, not a Jew, probably. Not a Jew. And you do get a sense that there was some anti-Semitism going on here yeah. with, with them. Yeah. Paul's a Jew, Alexander's a Jew, they shout him down. The city clerk actually was the liaison between the Roman government and the city. Ephesus, uh, Ephesus has this standing of being a self-governing free city. What's the clerk worried about? They're no longer going to be there. We're going to lose our status. There are going to be repercussions because of this unruly assembly. Right? What does that do to his standing? He loses uh, faith with the government. He loses faith. He can't control your people. We have to step in. His status diminishes. Maybe there's financial consequences to that. I don't know. The city's status would be diminished. The city's well, status is it diminished. It would no longer be this freestanding entity that is allowed to be the center of Right. Do whatever Rome says. Right. So you lose. They lose their status as a city, uh, of, of possibly of of being a free, self-governing place. You think this assembly is so great that we can meet here together and make decisions as town folk, and yet you're jeopardizing that by this kind of activity. So he makes a few arguments. Um, his first argument is what. Nobody can deny that we are the city of Artemis. Friends, Ephesians countrymen, lend me your ears. Artemis is under no real threat. Right? Who can deny this? Why, what is the evidence for his, him saying, who can deny it? What, what does he say? The stone, <laughs> the stone that fell from the sky. What is the sacred stone? Sacred stones. Let's see. Uh, no, I'm trying to, I was going to do a marble thing. Um, that... The sacred stone was referenced to a thing that happened a lot of times with these mother goddess cults. If a meteorite hits the ground, <clears throat> then it's got to be an idol, right? They take the stone, they shape it nice, and they put it in a place. I think there's one in um, Saudi Arabia. Uh, anyway, uh, there, this meteorite falls, and they, they associate it with, throughout, throughout history, it's been associated with this mother goddess stuff. And so he's referring to that comment. There was one in Rome, there's one in uh, Taurus, some other place. I can't remember where. But they had several of these places where there were, there were these stones that had fallen, these meteorites that had fallen, that they would then attribute to um, the mother goddess. Basically, he's saying the cult is too big to fail, right? Doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and her weird image, uh, which fell from heaven? The reference to the image from heaven is, is probably a meteorite. Um, what's the second argument he makes? It's the second one he makes. Nobody can deny Artemis. They've done, they've done nothing wrong. They've done nothing wrong. Now this is a theme that Luke draws out again and again. He will certainly through the end of Acts. And it's an, and it's an apologetic argument he's making. Christians aren't violating the law. They're good citizens. There's nothing you can bring charges against here, right? 
And in fact, that was an argument that, that Justin Martyr in particular, we, we know, picked up on in the second century. Who, who are the best citizens of the empire but Christians? We worship God alone, but we honor you as kings and rulers over men. That was, his, that was Justin's argument. And that's what Luke is drawing out here, made by none other than the Roman official. And you see this again. Paul was never charged with a crime. In fact, many times implicitly, the Roman authorities made Paul's argument, he's done nothing wrong. Who does that sound like? Jesus. Pilate. Pilate. What has he done? And this is the model, the model that is followed throughout, um, throughout Christianity, uh, in the, and certainly in the early church. Can we say that today? Can we say that today? Every April 15, can we say that? <laughs> All right. So the argument is the two Christians are not guilty of any crime. They had not blasphemed the goddess or robbed the temple, and the parliament robbed of respect. If anything illegal has been done, the clerk argues it's been done by this mob, and they're at risk with being charged with unlawful assembly. What's the third argument he makes? Is this the way we go about resolving disputes? What does he say? You're going to be charged with writing. You're in, you're in danger of jeopardizing you know, the, the, the stuff with the city, the, the benefits of the city. What does he say they could be doing instead? Go file suit. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> go on order. It is. Dun, dun. Go, file a, go file a suit. We got proconsuls to hear this. Right? We have people that can deal with If you have an argument to make, make it lawfully. This is not the way to do it. What's the problem with that? He's trying to reason with an unreasonable crowd. Right? Well, there is that. What's the problem with making a case against Christians? They have no case. He just said they'd done nothing wrong. And yet he recognizes, again, file it. It would get, it would get dismissed on a Rule 12b uh, motion. Anyway, so you have an argument here to them that sounds reasonable, but everybody knows they're not going to be able to do it. Aren't they technically blasphemers of the goddess, though? And everybody knows it, right? How would they be blasphemers? They're saying she's not a god. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know the technicality of what they considered blasphemy. He apparently makes a ruling. But they're not, but is that they're not from there, though, right? I mean, they're travelers, so... These guys that they brought in... Yeah, from Macedonia. Something's from the region. I don't. I don't know. Why would they be subjected to their law, though? Well, I mean, it was an empire-wide cult. But you're right. Why would they be subjected to Ephesus? Well, because they're in Ephesus. I mean, if you come to Texas, you're, you're thankfully subject to Texas law, right? right. Well, so wherever you're located, you're under the you're under the auspices of that so, government. So wherever you go, you have to pay homage to their god. Is that at least buy a little shrine thing? Yeah. Take it to the courts, bring it up on a regular day for the town meeting in an orderly fashion. That's the other thing he makes. They met like three times a month. We find out from Chrysostom later on that that's kind of where Ephesus' is, uh, Ephesus is, is, um, uh, governmental system was. They had three times a month they could bring this stuff up. What's the problem there again? There's nothing to bring There's up. There's nothing to bring up. <laughs> All right. Verse 40 involves a rare word that Luke uses as irony. 
In verse 27, Demetrius had said that Paul was a danger to Ephesus. Here, the clerk says, you men are a danger to us. What you're doing puts Ephesus in danger. So again, the roles are reversed. And that again draws out the theme that we see again and again in Acts about Christians um, not violating the law and being good citizens in the midst of the pagan culture. All right. It's 1011. A uh, couple of things here. Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It's really easy to look at these stories of pagans and think how stupid, how silly, and it is. But there's a reason that the New Testament describes the pursuit of holiness as putting to death, as a crucifixion. It hurts. It costs. Uh, and many times we respond to that like pagan toddlers. Our kingdom is falling and we have no legitimate argument to sustain it other than we want it. Gollum, I need it, I want it. So we scream, cry, and look for a safe zone where we can hold ourselves off from the gaze of omnipresent God as if that's going to work and carve out our little area that we can control and we can hang on to and we can nurture and grow that is apart from Christ. What's the problem with that? The psalmist says, where can I go? Can I go to the highest heaven? You're there. Can I go to the lowest hell? You're there. Can I go to the furthest reaches of the west, furthest reaches of the east? You're there. God sees all and he holds us accountable for what we do. Christ calls us to maturity. This is the will of God, your thankfulness. And that's in all things, regardless of the cost. It comes down to, is he worth it or not? Our actions display our answer to that question. Is he worth it or not? Do we riot against the call of Christ to pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord? Or do we humbly submit in thankfulness to Jesus, you're enough? So we can look at these guys, and that's just pagans being pagans. Who are we imaging? Pagans or Jesus? So that's kind of the heart question that, that hit me this week on this. What, what are some comments that you have through this? For two minutes. So I'm curious, is, is why did the, were the Greeks so old into Christianity, but the Ephesians weren't? The Ephesians were. That's why it was having an impact on the culture as a whole. The whole city wasn't converted, well, but a bunch of them were. Athens, the Athenians were very religious. Oh, that's what you're saying. They had a bunch of other gods as well. And they're like, well, we'll add this one. Yeah, they were a lot, lot more cosmopolitan in Athens, maybe. <laughs> they were singularly focused in Ephesus because all their money is wrapped up in Artemis. Maybe, maybe there's some of that. Yeah, I think sometimes it's difficult for us to, um, to tell each other our sins. It's, it's, it's hard to put to, to death the deeds of the flesh when you're not in community. Mm. And like Paul comes in and preaches Christ, and all of a sudden the whole city just is in upheaval. Right. And 
you know, then you're being held accountable by everybody and they all put their stuff in and they mm -hmm. burn the books and all that. And we need each other. We need the church. We need community. We need to be open and vulnerable with each other. Yeah, that sounds great. And you're exactly right. Until you point the finger at me and say, Kevin, you need to change this. I see this in your life. Then I start drowning out your argument. Who are you? And, you know, there is a humility that we have to bring to exactly that. I need to be able to be, I need to be willing to receive correction. That's a hard thing to do, right? That, that's impossible. Which is why we need Christ why we need the Spirit working in us, and why we need to pray for humility and wisdom and how we interact with one another um, in growing. But you're exactly right. We need each other. I mean, I, there are lots of things that I would just let float if Tammy didn't bring them out. Yeah, and vice versa. But you, Tammy receives that correction so humbly. And, uh, and I give it so humbly, too, which is a good thing. It's always a, always a good thing. So, anything else? That's right. We're, yeah. <laughs> How she survived me for 20 years. That'll be the title of our book. Um, all right. Let's pray. Jesus, who do we have in heaven or on earth but you? What compares to your worth, to your beauty, to your kindness and grace to us? Why would we go anywhere else? And yet we find ourselves again and again drawn to foreign gods, foreign idols, coveting things that display that we are not thankful and that we're not content in who you are and what you've done for us. Would you help us? Would you help us to be humble enough to ask for accountability? Would you help us to be humble enough to um, do loving correction rather than thumping the chest to make ourselves feel better when we correct a brother? We want to do this rightly. We want to have community rightly. And so we pray for your wisdom and your grace as we move forward. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.